This is Chapter 86 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. This week, two legendary women writers who between them have written nearly 90 books. Who else would I be talking about other than Mary Higgins Clark and Barbara Taylor Bradford? Mary Higgins Clark is known as the queen of suspense, and for good reason. She's written more than 50 5-0 murder mystery books, and at the age of 91 shows no signs of slowing down. Our Pat Farnack spoke with her about her latest book, You Don't Own Me, written with her writing partner, Alifair Burke. This is part of the Under Suspicion series featuring Laurie Moran, and why does Laurie's character intrigue you guys so much? Well, I just like the idea of the young widow, her husband is shot, and she's always worried then about her three-year-old son. So she carries this burden every minute of the day that someone is out there. And it was from that kind of thinking that I decided the Under Suspicion series Mm -hmm. would be a good way to go. Simon and Schuster asked me to continue writing about Laurie because they liked the concept of under suspicion. And it's been a lot of fun to do it. Well, she's a fun character to follow. And once again, New York City is the setting for You Don't Own Me. And that must be fun for you as well, since I know you have an apartment in New York. Yes, I do. And I was born in the Bronx and always loved Manhattan. And when when I was 15, I was a telephone operator after school. And it I would walk along Fifth Avenue and pick out the clothes I would have when I was a successful writer. <laughs> so that's why you're always so well-dressed. <laughs> well, I try to be. Let's put it that way. As with any murder mystery, You Don't Own Me has, a, has many delicious secrets. And I guess in writing about murder, as you have for so many years, there are always sec- are almost always secrets at the root of many murders. Well, the motive of almost any murder, was it a marital dispute? Was it a financial one? Was it jealousy? Have you always been one of these people who reads uh, about crime first? Has that uh, motivated you over the years to delve into these uh, these murders? The very first short story I sold for $100 was a crime story. Then the second one, the full book, was about George Washington, which actually sells all the time at Mount Vernon now. I called it Mount Vernon Love Story. But it didn't sell, and I thought, I'd really like to get something that will sell. And I looked at my shelves. There was Agatha Christie on and on. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I love these books. I'm always trying to be the first person who was reading it to say, He's the one or she's the one. So I thought, I really have been teaching myself about crime. Let's give it a go. And that story became, Where Are the Children? And that launched me on my career. You're still going. Um, What's coming next? Do you have a a contract that calls for X number of books per year? Well, the one I do with Alifair is one a year that comes out at this time. The one I do myself is in around Mother's Day, and I turn that in in December. This year, 
I'm a little behind in this book, so it won't be out for Mother's Day, but I'll give you the title. Okay. He Kissed Girls and Made Them Cry. That sounds intriguing. I think it's a good story. Do you personally, I was curious about this, do you schedule downtime or uh, and how do you stay healthy with uh, all your literary commitments? The big thing is I love to write. For me, it's not a, a job. It's something I love to do. And I work well, not so much on weekends, but I work from after breakfast until well, maybe three or four in the afternoon. But I'm sitting in a very comfortable chair. I'm happy with what I'm doing. And most things I go to are in the evening. So it's a very comforting way to spend the day. I guess it's better than watching Law & Order reruns, right, on TV? Not so much, oddly <laughs> enough. But I like them. When I do see them, I think they're very well done. They really of are. Of course. Oh, they're excellent. And, of course, there are things, if the body is found, they won't get the results of an autopsy overnight. You right, know, in many correct. cases, it's weeks before it's absolutely analyzed. But, of course, this is this is television. You've got to move. Have you seen the uh, latest uh, Dick Wolf series, FBI? I think it's on on Tuesday nights. It's really... No, ru- I haven't. Oh, it's right up your alley, Mary. You've got to see it. It's called FBI. Yeah, FBI. It's on Tuesday nights on, I think, on NBC. But it's from Dick Wolf, who who did Law and Order. Oh, Dick Wolf is yeah. a brilliant, brilliant guy. You see his name on everything. I know. I know. He's like you. He's very prolific. Oh, he's a lot <laughs> more prolific than I am. Now, Mary, do you plan to keep on cooking with your writing career? As far as I know, I mean, I'm not planning to quit. And... Unless I felt I couldn't write a decent book. And in that case, I would have the grace to to pick up my marbles and go home. Well, I don't think you're going to do that anytime soon. Thank you. Let's hope not. Thank you, Mary, for for doing the interview this morning. And I'm I'm in the middle of your book, and I'm enjoying it thoroughly. You want me to tell you how it ends? No! (laughs) Will I be surprised? (laughs) I hope so. I'd like that. I think you will be. Well, thank you again for for talking to us, and we really appreciate it. A pleasure. Thank you so much, Pat. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. It's been almost 40 years since Barbara Taylor Bradford published her enduring bestseller, A Woman of Substance. The historical family saga has been published in 90 countries and 40 languages and sold tens of millions of copies. Her newest book, number 38 for those keeping count, is sure to be just as well received. She recently invited me to her home where we had a long chat about her writing career and that new book, Master of His Fate. Once again, you've woven together this richly detailed, beautiful love story. And to me, it really was like a dance where the two main characters, which every part they would get closer and closer before they were right in front of each other. Why don't you tell my audience a a little bit more about the book? Uh, The new book is called Master of His Fate, and it's the first in a series of four books with the overall title of The House of Falconer. Not Falconer, as in William, but like the bird, the falcon. And it covers 
the period I've never written about before, the Victorian period from 1884 to the Edwardian era, to the death of Queen Victoria. There was quite a lot of research to do because I have written about the periods of Edward IV in the 1400s and the Tudors in the 1500s. And I know that ancient history, but I realized, having had the idea for the House of Faulkner, that I didn't know much about the Victorian period. So the book begins in 1884, as I said, and goes up to the Edwardian era. I realized as I began to write Master of His Fate that I'd actually written an outline for it for book one, but told the story of his life <laughs> from 14 by him. He's the, the, the person we're talking about, his fate, his destiny is James Falconer. And we start when he's 14, and the book ends when he's in his 50. He doesn't die, but the story comes to an end. And I thought, I have to now go back and say, what is book one, two, three, and four? Um, I realized as I was thinking this through that he couldn't, he wouldn't, as a 14-year-old to a 19-year-old, you know, have a big romance with someone and get married and have children. So what I understood also was my main, main female character would not really have a part in the book unless I gave her a life of her own. And I did. So you were saying that you loved the romance. Uh, I had to figure out, all right, we've got James Lionel Falconer. He's the protagonist through four books, but I write about warrior women, women who go out and conquer the world. So who is going to be the main woman? And I invented Alexis Malvern, and she is an only child. Her mother died when she was eight, and her father has brought her up and she's his heir because she's his only child and actually will inherit an enormous business empire. Uh, so as she gets older, and this is when she comes in, when she's in her 20s, he's always looking for men for her, but she doesn't want a man. She doesn't want to get married. She's very smart and she understands that if she marries, in those days, the, a woman didn't have the freedom of today or the rights. So here we have a woman who is very independent, very self-confident, uh, a very glamorous-looking redhead who doesn't want to get married because she wants to keep what's hers I think maybe a little bit I borrowed from Elizabeth I because, you know, Elizabeth I never got married for the reason that she had been so threatened as a child and growing up and not liked by her father, Henry VIII, and not liked by her sister, Mary, and um, always at risk that she might be killed. So... She hesitated, even though she loved Robert Dudley, 
she never married because she wanted to keep control of what she owned as well as herself. So I may have stolen a little bit of that when I created Alexis Malvin, but I realized as I was beginning the book, well, I've got the uh, everything about James and his family, his grandparents in particular, shaped his life in a way. Um, his brothers and sister, his father and mother, the, the whole family. There's a, they're a lovely family. I, I love families. I love writing about families. And that's what, what makes the world what it is, you know. But Alexis is, is just Alexis and her father. And I thought, well, I can't just have her going to work. I've got to invent a whole life for her before I get to book two. But anyway, she's independent and she works for with, it, with her father and she does go out to events with platonic friendships. She has platonic friendships, mainly because her father pushes her into it. But I thought she is a maverick in many ways and maybe she will break some of the rules of the game um, in Victorian England. And you know, the more research I did, the more I realized that, yes, she would, because many people did. The Victorians weren't quite as staid and, um, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, prudish mm -hmm. um, as we believe. And so she does meet a man with whom she falls in love. I mean, it is it is what the French call a coup de foot, a flash of lightning. You look at each other and you know instantly that this is it. And that happens to her. But I knew I had to get rid of him, Sebastian. And so <clears throat> I plotted the book carefully so that I would be able to end on a note where she is now alone again and available. But you don't know whether or not she is going to fall into the arms of James Falconer. It's a bit of a cliffhanger at the end. The story definitely has a modern feel, even though it's set in Victorian times. As I said to somebody the other day, you know, we're just like the Romans, we're just like the Tudors, we're like the Victorians, because we're human beings, and human beings don't acquire, they can get a new outfit to suit the times they live in, and eat different foods, and have different cultures that work for the years they're living, but human nature has not changed since we became humans. We, we haven't got different feelings and emotions. We have the same emotions and feelings as the Romans. We're just wearing different clothes and go about things differently. And it's the same with the Victorians. Um, you know, we thought they were prudish and well-behaved and didn't do naughty things, but they did it all. They did everything we do, <laughs> except in a different period of time, wearing different clothes with certain... Um, you know, you could have a love affair, and um, as I read in one book, that's why, when I was doing the research, somebody invented the country weekend for the aristocrats so that a lady who is married can go alone for a weekend to stay with her friends 
and meet her single boyfriend because he'll be down the corridor in a bedroom with his name on the door because they all, in those big homes, they had like a little um, little metal disc and you slipped a card into it which said um, Sir Humphrey Smith. And then further down another corridor it would say Mrs. Jones. Um, so that they could have a rendezvous. And I laughed when I read that, and I thought, yes, they had to have this whole weekend adventure because there was no way uh, a married woman go out and say to her housekeeper and her staff, I won't be back for lunch. I'm meeting my friend, Mrs. Smith, and go and meet a man because there was nowhere for them to go because they couldn't be seen entering a hotel together or sing and they couldn't she couldn't go in alone because nobody would know whether she was single or married and married women could go out alone but a single woman of a certain class couldn't she had to have always another woman with her as a chaperone but the worst thing of all um, was the clothing. It would be very hard to have a rendezvous with a man in Victorian times. Let's say he was a bachelor and he had a very nice house and an understanding staff and he could have his mistress over for lunch or tea. Who was going to get her out of all the clothes? <laughs> because in the time of the crinoline, well, I'll tell you, I found a book a research, a book for research called How to Be a Victorian. And it was written like four years ago. And it was this young woman of today who dis in England who decided she would live for one year as a Victorian. Well, what did they wear? Let's start with something they called knickers. And it was two legs and a top. Well, it was a pair of knickers, but there was a hole cut in the middle in order for them to be able to go and sit on a toilet. But they couldn't really sit on a toilet. It was all very difficult because they had, they had their, their knickers and a little, a little vest, like a little top. And then came one underskirt to the, from the waist to the floor and then came the hoop and it was made of metal that was bound in silk and you tied it on around your waist and it was like a bell you know it was like a bell made of it was strange because it was metal pieces with with you know like a lampshade but it it had it wasn't solid, it had strips so, and then air in between. So you tied that on and then you put two more petticoats on and then you put another little lace thing to hide all that. And then, of course, you got laced up into a corset, which was laced at the back and went right over the bust, down over the waist and the stomach and and held you made you a beautiful shape once you've got that on you have on you put on then um coming down from the corset uh, is a little thing with suspenders and you put on your stockings then you put on the dress 
And that usually had a lot of buttons down the back. So if you can imagine a man fumbling with the buttons <laughs> and getting her out of the dress and out of the underskirts and out of the, of the crinoline hoop, down to the underwear. I think he'd lost all interest at that time, <laughs> don't you? But anyway, um, my my Alexis is, as, as I said, she's a maverick and very independent and not at all. She doesn't think twice to have an affair with Sebastian. But she, in the book, um, understands that she goes to work. She can't really go to work in a crinoline. So she, they, somebody invented a half crinoline where it was open at the front, it just stopped. It just gave um, the crinoline at the back and nothing at the front. So it was just like a bustle. And slowly, of course, that crinoline went away because in homes, they can have a coffee table like this because your hoops knocked everything <laughs> off. So that's why they always had etagers and stands and, and, and palm trees and plants to, you couldn't knock those over. So the research actually was wonderful in a way because it did give me lots of ideas for side plots and presented problems. And of course, at that time, a lot was happening in history. And, you know, I like to include real historical events in my books because I think they give it a, the story a sense of authenticity. Somebody asked me once, well, how would you explain a novel? I mean, a novel is fiction. We know it never happened. You've invented it, but what would you say? How would you describe it, a novel? And I said, it's a monumental lie that has to have the absolute ring of truth if it's going to succeed. And the ring of truth comes from the fact in master of his fate, that Great Britain is it's the richest country in the world, and yet the average, ordinary, everyday person went to bed with an empty belly. It was a dichotomy that was extraordinary as I was reading it, all of these different books, to think that nobody ever thought about the They were the very rich and the very poor, but in the mid-1800s, we got professional people like doctors and nurses and newspaper people like us, uh, actors and actresses, although they were always looked at as a little bit dimly, um, and the merchants who were like the Malverns, like Alexis's father. But nobody did anything to help the poor. Some people were philanthropic, and they did, but basically it was the very rich and the very poor with that. I suppose you'd call it middle class in the middle, and and then maybe lower middle class. But think about it, all that money, and half the people were starving and living in slums. And I said to a friend of mine in England, and I said, you know, Dickens didn't invent, he reported because what I did was get, I thought, how do I find out about Victorian England what, what, with what something I'll enjoy doing? So when I started my research, I read a, um, a biography, 
I read several biographies of Dickens. It gave me a sense of the... He was dead when my book starts. He died. But it gave me a sense of what Victorian England was like and what the manners were, where the streets were. Was there a, a Grosvenor Square then, as there is today? When, when was Fortnum and Masons founded? So all of that historical stuff... I got when I read about Dickens also made me understand that what he saw every day is what he wrote. He didn't have to invent the conditions because the conditions were there. And of course, oddly enough, which adds a bit of drama to my book, is that it happened to be the period of time when there was Jack the Ripper. So actually, I brought a lot of history into the book without making it obvious. You know, I hate when you read it and you think, oh, the author put that there to prove something. I, I just showed what it was like, how they lived. It was an adventure for me. And I can't wait to start the next one. I was going to ask, you're celebrating, is it 40 years being a novelist next year? Yes, next year... In 19, I mean, in 2019, it will be the 40th anniversary of A Woman of Substance being published in 1979. And it's amazing. Uh, it's, I don't know what happened. What, what happened to the 40 years? I was going to say, you, you seem to still really enjoy it, have a lot of fun. Where do you get your inspiration from? You know, <clears throat> I don't know who said this, and I didn't invent it, but I, I did read it somewhere, that it's it's mostly 10% inspiration and 90% hard work. But I think I personally was born as a writer. I think I was uh, writing as I came out of the, my mother's womb. She read to me a lot and taught me to read. I've often said she force-fed Dickens to me, uh, but it didn't seem that I was being force-fed. It just seemed that I was being given all these books to read, and, and they were all Dickens. And my favorite of all is David Copperfield, but um, I also was madly in love with the Brontes because I come from that part of England. I come from the north. I come from Yorkshire where Emily and Charlotte and their brother lived with another sister, Anne. And, of course, the first book of theirs I read was Emily's Wuthering Heights. And, of course, that is always thought of as a great love story. But... As I grew older, into my 20s, and read it again, I realized that Wuthering Heights is a book about revenge. Revenge and retribution. To me, Emily Bronte, perhaps a little bit more than Charlotte, was one of the great geniuses of English literature. Wuthering Heights is an amazing book because it has two narrators. And where have you ever seen two narrators? And so smoothly written that you're hardly aware that there have been two narrators to this story. It, it, it's a still a marvelous book, 
and I've 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 even had a book. I've written a novel where I've had an actress, and I think that's in the Triumph of Katie Byrne, a book of mine. Um, she is in a play about the Brontes. I always go back to the Brontes. Do you ever dare to dream that your books will be the kind of inspiration for up and coming writers that the Brontes and Dickens were for you? You know, I don't. I don't, because you'd never. But they might. I don't know. I, I don't like predictions. I do agree with what everyone has said who's read the book. You really do transport us oh, do to I? that time. Oh, one hundred percent. And the, de- the it's so detailed that you just can't help but fall into that world. Well, you know, I think what I learned from my mother, who force-fed me Dickens, was to love detail. And he's very detailed, not that I'm comparing myself to one of the world's (laughs) great geniuses, but he always told in detail. I do think people are curious about families and how do they live together and who does what to whom. And of course, I answered a question the other day. Someone said to me, why do you like writing family sagas? I said, because there's no... There's not an uh, there's not another place in the whole world that's quite as dangerous as living in a large family, because every emotion comes into play, if you think about it: love, jealousy, envy, sorrow, heartache. I think on some level, a lot of readers can identify with that in yes, family dramas. Yes, yes. So I have a final question for you. Yes. What would your advice be to someone who wants to start writing? You know, a lot of people have asked me this question and and I don't I've never been able to answer it because the most important thing to me is that a would-be writer has to understand that character is plot. And that was first said by Graham Greene, the late British writer. And when I read that, I understood exactly how to write a novel because what he meant was character is destiny. The character of James Falconer, who he is as a human being, is going to tell the story of his life. Because of what his own character is, it will lead him to take the path he takes. And a lot of people, if they don't understand that, they don't understand that a book really is about people. And it's the people who are telling the story and what they do that is the plot. So I think my advice is think up a story. And, and and don't think that you are going to is going to come easy because sometimes I spend months working out plot lines and storylines and what will work. And I think then you have to sit down and try and write it. Don't I suppose you can go to a school if you feel you need to learn form and how to construct something, and you can le- learn things like that. But what you cannot be taught is an imagination. If you don't have an imagination, you can't write a book because you've got to be able to invent people that never lived, who 
lived lives that were never lived. You've got to create their lives. You see, I always have a background for everybody. I might not bring it into the book, but I must know when were they born, what sign are they, what do they like. I used to keep cards. I don't do it for minor characters anymore, but I did it for all the characters. I had a shoebox and I had white cards and I would say, all right, Jane Smith, she's 18. Her birthday is May 7th. She was born in 1919, uh, just after the end of the World War. Oh, well, who is the family? Where does she come from? What is she like? What does she look like? What are her traits that are good or bad? And what does she mean to the story? Why is she there? I think all that planning worked for me in the beginning. I mean, I had several shoeboxes for a woman of substance with everybody detailed. I don't quite do that anymore. Um, Not as many boxes anyway. But I think by actually writing about a non-existent person and creating them and building them, it gives them substance. And this it's like getting to know somebody. That's that's what makes my characters real, I think, is the amount of information I give you about them. Not too much, but enough to make you care. If you don't care about what happens to the people in the book, then the book has failed. You really want you really want to be pulled into a book within the first let's say first forty pages. I try to do it sooner, you know. How do you teach anybody this? I don't know. If I had to teach a class, I would just have to talk like this and hope that somebody would take something away. I must know the end of the book. And this is why I take a long time to think out the whole book. And I can look as if I'm doing nothing all day, sitting at a desk. But I am. My mind is working. And I tell the story to myself from the beginning. And sometimes it doesn't always work. I think you've also got to have an innate ability to write. I think you, if it's like having an, an innate ability to paint a picture and become an artist, to become a Renoir. I think they all painted as children, all of the great Impressionists. Um, what about an actor? Don't you think the greatest actors is the one who are always, you know, tap dancing or singing and dancing or performing and their parents recognize this talent? And a musical person who wants to play the piano or a violin or whatever. So I think you've got to have the desire to write and a, and a, an ability to do so without someone having taught you how to do it. I think you've got to know, nobody taught me how to write a novel. I just sat down and wrote it. Mind you, I started five and never finished them before I wrote A Woman of Substance. I don't think that matters now anymore because you just kept on writing. Well, this I have to tell you, this has been a real treat. Thank, Thank you. you so much for inviting me into your home to talk to you. That's very sweet of you, Lisa. Thank you. That's this week's show. Not sure how I'm going to top it next week. Hmm. Let's see. How about we talk to David Baldacci about his new book, 
featuring his first female protagonist. I think that'll do. Until next time, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books.